The findings and conclusions in this presentation have not been formally disseminated by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and should not be construed to represent any agency determination or policy. Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Dr. Eric Svensson is the Director of the Division of Environmental Health, Science, and Practice at the National Center for Environmental Health within the CDC. With more than 20 years of experience in research and public health, his focus is predominantly on environmentally induced illnesses. On this edition of This Is Design Intelligence, he joins us to talk about what his division at the CDC does, what it means to the built environment industry, and how architects, engineers, and developers can engage with the CDC to design for public health. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Eric, thank you for joining us here in the studio. Happy to be here. Eric, it's, it is an honor to have you here with us, but tell us specifically, what is your role within this CDC and what is your scope or span of control in the work that you do? The CDC is the center's for disease control and prevention. So that means we're made up of several centers and I am in the National Center for Environmental Health. And within that, we have two different divisions. And then I lead one of those divisions. And that division is the Division of Environmental Health Science and Practice. Within our division, our focus is doing the science that is needed to advance environmental public health practice and then helping to support environmental public health practice across the country to identify the research gaps and needs that we need to do further study of to help move environmental public health forward. So public health is at the center of so much these days, and the work that you folks do is, I'm guessing, has to do with uh, monitoring and an assessment of of different environments? Are those within the built environment or outside the built environment? Help me understand the context. Sure. Well, some people think that environmental health is the health of the environment. It's really the flip of that. It's how the environment affects our health. And that universal definition really is used throughout other agencies in the federal government. In public health, we have several different levels of public health we have the national level, which we've heard a lot about over the last couple of years. We have states and we have counties, we have cities, we have territories, and also we work with U.S. affiliated nations. So we help support those public health programs either directly through funding or other types of resources that we provide to them, or we provide direct assistance through technical assistance if there's an outbreak and they need some assistance in having people go to identify the causes of the outbreak and to, uh, to stop the outbreak from expanding. The environmental health, we refer to all of the things within the environment that are hazardous that could impact our health. And the, in the built environment space, an example would be exposure to bacteria or molds or other types of hazards in the air or in the water within the places or spaces that we live, work, play, or worship. And so an example of that would be uh, Legionella uh, in that 
Legionnaire's disease is a disease that is uh, from exposure to this bacteria. And uh, we support environmental health programs who have outbreaks of Legionnaire's disease or Legionella exposures within uh, buildings in their jurisdictions. How prevalent is Legionnaire's within the U.S. environment, for instance? Well, Legionella bacteria is a naturally occurring bacteria within the world around us, and it has become more problematic since the 1970s. And it is an increasing, what we would call an increasingly more common concern across the country. And the trends are increasing in the number of diseases that we're finding across the U.S. And so, for instance, for us that don't understand what Legionnaire's disease is, how does it affect the human body? So it is a respiratory disease, and it was first identified back in the 1970s, and it was associated with an outbreak of this pneumonia-like illness within a population who were having a conference. It was a Legionnaire, American Legion conference, and it was primarily within a population of men who were there for the conference, and uh, they developed a very severe pneumonia. Wow. So you, you talked about Legionnaires starting in the 70s. Was there any relationship between this and what has been discovered is the proliferation of HVAC, of internal air conditioning and, and heating control systems within buildings that didn't exist particularly the way they do today in the 60s and years before? Yes, much has changed in our built environment over the last 100 years. Much has changed in the world around us since CDC was founded over 75 years ago. In public health, we look at the hazards in the environment, the impacts that those have on the people in the environment, and then how we can intervene in those diseases. And in the case of Legionnaire's disease, it happened in the 70s. It was identified in the 70s. And there were a few things that really allowed that to happen. One was better diagnoses of, of disease. Another is being able to identify bacteria better. And then lastly, there were some changes within how we use our buildings uh, in the 1970s that also allowed for this type of uh, outbreak. In the 1970s, there was this energy crisis. And during that time, buildings were being retrofitted to be more energy efficient. They were being renovated to uh, have less ventilation and, and they're tighter, as they would say. And they're not as leaky and, and more air is being retained. And so when things like that happen in a building that's not been designed for that, then you can have challenges, you can have problems, you can have increased exposures within those buildings to uh, microorganisms that are being cultured there, so to speak, like molds or bacteria, or other types of exposures such as allergens and dusts and, and even volatile organic chemicals from the, the different materials that are being used within buildings. We're finding that coming out of this recent period where there has been such a change in the work style of particularly the American worker of moving to uh, a hybrid workforce that so many buildings are emptied at this point because people aren't going to work in those buildings like they were or that they're partially occupied. Whole floors are empty while other floors are full. And so it's raising uh, the big 
opportunity or challenge within the commercial real estate market about uh, completely repurposing buildings. And so you might have an office building that was built to house a bunch of office workers that is now being converted to residential. Or you see an old dormitory that's now being trying to be turned into a scientific laboratory or things like this. So this completely reuse and repurpose of buildings will potentially raise this challenge again to us because the original architecture was not accommodating what it is newly going to have to accommodate. I think about these things when you talked about in the 70s, we began to repurpose buildings and use them in different ways and and systems were put in that maybe the original architecture didn't foresee. And that may have caused us to be thinking differently about these the rise of this disease. I'm just wondering, in your opinion, any correlation about that that we should be more concerned about as we're going to be moving in mass to this repurposing? One of the things that we were quite concerned about early on in the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, was what happens when people go back into buildings in the way that they were. And so we put out guidance for public health officials and businesses and even the the lay public in reopening buildings. And that was uh, released very early in the pandemic. Much of that was related to air handling systems and water systems. Water systems, if they're not continuously being used, you have a couple different issues that can happen that can cause problems. One is temperature control. You can have, like, for example, Legionella, the uh, temperature that it is cultured within water systems is between uh, 77 and 113 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, So our recommendations typically are that hot water is heated around 120 degrees Fahrenheit, which would help to dissipate that risk. You don't want it to be too hot because then it's a scalding risk as well. Uh, So we had guidance about that. We also had guidance for other issues that beyond just the uh, microorganisms in water systems like lead in pipes. And so flushing to get rid of any residual metals that might be in there that could be of a public health concern. We also had some concerns about air handling systems being dormant for a while and having growth of microbes within those systems. And we had guidance on ventilation uh, that was also released to how to manage uh, disease within buildings and maximize ventilation to minimize risk. Our field, which is the built environment at Design Intelligence, we focus primarily on the folks who are the professionals in architecture and design, the engineering organizations around the world. Um, What is the CDC doing to support the built environment and the professionals in this place around public health? There are several things, uh, and we could talk for hours on all the different things that we can do to help support uh, this space. I'll, I'll focus on just a, a few. One we really hit on already, which was Legionnaire's disease and Legionella, which is really one example of different types of biofilms that can be developed within buildings. Another is just safe drinking water in general. Uh, oftentimes, water is treated as this inert substance. When it comes into a building, it's going to stay inert the whole time. It's within the structure when it goes throughout the water system, 
that is not true. You have to be concerned about the residual chlorine within water and systems within buildings and making sure that it retains that at the tap where it's still going to be safe to drink. Another example of an area that we have really helped the built environment is with certification. So um, I would anticipate that hopefully some of the members of your your audience are familiar with FitWell, which is a collaboration between the CDC and the U.S. General Services Administration, where we helped create this building certification program that was uh, really designed to help to set standards for how you build and operate a building to support the health of the occupants within the building and its health across all levels, whether it be uh, safety issues and slip and fall and those kind of things too, as well as not becoming ill while you're in a building. So that's one example with uh, the FitWell building certification. So the Legionnaire's disease, FitWell, safe drinking water, and making sure that the drinking water is properly treated within systems. And going back to your earlier comment about buildings being reused, even before major renovations are done, you often see changes in, in plumbing systems uh, within buildings, and sometimes that can be problematic. And so we have, uh, within the CDC, we have programs to help support water programs at the local level where they can either work with homeowners, if in the case of homeowners that might have a well, and how do they bring water into their home and, and distribute it within their home in a way that is safe. And also we have programs to help support health departments that could also be able to have in larger jurisdictions, teams of people who can help respond to outbreaks from other types of biofilm related diseases. I'm curious if any of your resources, uh, I mean, the CDC is so massive and complex from an outsider's view, maybe on an insider's view too, but on an outsider's view that it's sometimes hard to make the connection between all that it does, all that it provides, all of the value that it brings to our society and the guy on the street. And how do we make that connection more applicable? And I'm thinking particularly about our environment, architects and engineers, I'm wondering, actually, we're going to be with some in, in next week, and I, I may just put out a question to the audience, how many of you interact with the CDC in any way? And, and I, my, my guess is, is it's going to be very few because I'm not sure they really understand what values that the CDC could bring to them when they're thinking about the design of buildings, the design of communities, because these aren't just individual buildings. These are the folks that are responsible for whole communities and the building of cities. Sure. And how closely tied are they to that? Well, the built environment is quite broad. It's not just a building. As you said, it's the cities and the places and places within those cities where people uh, live, work, play, and worship, as I mentioned earlier. And related to that, another way that we interact or potentially could interact more within the built environment community is with our work in climate change. Some might say climate change. How, how is that connected? Uh, going back to our earlier discussion where we talked about the energy crisis in the 1970s, we're having a, 
a similar kind of dialogue right now and not so much looking at the resource issue, but looking at the issue of trying to make our places uh, more energy efficient so that we are addressing the issues of climate change across all of government. And how we do that in the CDC is to look at how we can help build resilience to climate change within communities so that uh, we recognize it's a, it's a hazard right now. So how do we empower public health programs across the country to address those public health threats in their own jurisdictions in ways that can help address the needs of the public right now? The program that we've developed at the CDC to address this is what we call the BRACE framework or the BRACE program, which is building resilience against climate effects. It's designed to look at the effects on public health right now. What is happening right now across the country that is impacting the health of populations? That is the space that we work in, is helping to protect the public from the threats to their health within the public. And whether it be increasing drought and then the associated potential wildfires or issues with water scarcity, uh, like we've seen in parts of Native American populations across the country, we have worked in that space to help bring in water systems, as another example, to help increase their access to water and to help to increase their access to sanitation as well. In the BRACE framework, it empowers local jurisdictions to look at those issues that are tied to a changing climate. What is changing and how do we address that change in the public? A simple example of how we provide resources to the design community or public health in general is, well, what's changing in our environment? Well, we have resources to be able to identify that. Through our Environmental Public Health Tracking Program, we have a series of data sets which you can view and see within your jurisdiction and be able to look at all the different types of data systems that can let you know how has my environment changed recently. You could look at temperature. We have an example there is our heat and health tracker, which looks at how you can look at your own jurisdiction, look at the patterns of heat-related illness, and look at the patterns of heat change over time. You can forecast that into the future to look at how you can change the design of buildings within that community. That's one example as well. I, I think that there needs to be a much more fluid dialogue occur between professionals in architecture and design and engineering with the CDC on a pretty regular basis to bridge the gap between private public type of use of language. But, you know, we're seeing just in spite of the economic jitters that everybody is worried about right now, we continue to see the built environment grow at, at an amazing rate across the United States. It will continue, uh, we foresee, through the next two years. And it seems to me that there is a need for us to bridge a gap on so much that's available to the professions 
through the CDC and through it as a coordinating body with so many other agencies. You think of of the the uh, FEMA, which is associated with you guys in some way. I'm I'm thinking that someplace or another, you're connected to the National Institutes of Health and other kind of things. Sure. It's so it's so large and and complex. I how, we call that how the would, big federal family. The big federal family. <laughs> That's a good way yes, of putting it. So yeah. we're connected to other parts of the federal family, and we work with them routinely on many issues that cross our missions. Uh, you mentioned FEMA, for example. I mentioned earlier how the definition of, of environmental health is universally adopted across federal agencies. So that includes the EPA. That includes the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences. So EPA is a regulatory agency. And so they use their regulatory authorities to address issues of environmental health. NIEHS, as we say, the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences, well, they support science and the research in environmental health. Our role, as I said before, is in public health and supporting the environmental health aspects of public health. And when we look at the context of climate change and the changing climate, oftentimes we're talking about disasters or disaster preparedness. And so you mentioned FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. So FEMA works closely with us, uh, or we work closely with them uh, in preparedness exercises, in, in helping communities recover after some type of weather-related, or we could say climate-related disaster. And so we work quite frequently with our federal partners on those types of issues. So, in a percentage of 100%, is the work of the CDC primarily reactive or proactive in its nature? That's an excellent question. In prevention, we're trying to prevent illness, disease, and death within the public. We have primary prevention and secondary and tertiary prevention. So, I'll give an example. We talked about Legionnaire's disease. So, if you're going to have a tertiary prevention, you're going to say, okay, we have an outbreak and we're going to need to treat the people who are sick. We do that at CDC. We provide guidance as to how to best treat people from certain types of diseases that are communicable or other types of diseases. And so we work in that space. If there is an exposure that is within an environment, a secondary prevention would be to minimize that exposure to the person. So that could be simply changing ventilation in a building. So you have a hazard in a building, but you're going to minimize the exposure by increasing the ventilation. That's part of what we did with COVID guidance, is to provide some secondary prevention guidance so that, yes, the hazard's there, but we're going to minimize the exposure by increasing the ventilation. And then a primary prevention example is just to not even have the exposure at all. And you could design into the system some type of intervention so that hazard is not there. Uh, in Legionnaire's disease, it's water management systems. It's design and correct management of spas and indoor pools and air handling systems and water systems. And so that by design, there is no exposure. So when you look to the future, the future of your division and of the work that you both personally do and engage in, 
What do you see as the future of this regarding the built environment? There's so much to do in the built environment. As you mentioned before, there are many changes that are happening within the built environment now in this post-pandemic world. And we anticipate that those are going to continue to change also with the challenges that we have with climate change and the adjustments that we have to have within our environments and how we manage our buildings and how we manage our resources. So the future for how we work, we would love to see more partnerships. And a great example within the federal family, as I mentioned before, is many of the federal agencies that we frequently collaborate with have resources to address infrastructure challenges related to climate change and trying to modernize buildings, trying to modernize systems that need to be upgraded to be environmentally friendly and and eco-friendly. And so there are opportunities for us to be able to collaborate and to partner with them so that as they're making those changes, they're also able to prevent unanticipated public health challenges like the ones we talked about, or to design in public health from the very beginning so that they can help prevent public health challenges within these new structures. You've really nailed it when you said that. Let's get proactive about this, about how to design public health into the original design and see it realized right out of the gate. One of our audience, uh, an engineer, an architect, a developer, someone wanted the opportunity to engage in a meaningful conversation with you folks. How, how is that done? Well, we work through uh, partnerships with our local health departments. We always suggest starting local mm-hmm. because that, those are the hands and feet of public health. They're the ones out there doing the work. Uh, At the federal level, we do have some jurisdictions where we are the hands and feet. Uh, One example of that is uh, with our cruise ship program, where we are empowered to protect the United States from the introduction of diseases into the United States through cruise ships. And the focus of our program is primarily on acute gastroenteritis. So illnesses associated with uh, gastrointestinal disease. And we work closely within the design community right now with the cruise ship program to be able to talk to the architects, engineers who are designing cruise ships, even in the design phase, so that as they're building these ships, they're building them in a way that's going to protect public as best we can and design the places and spaces within the ships that are going to be less likely to encourage outbreaks uh, on those ships. So that's one example of how we're doing that right now. What are some unintended consequences of a poor built environment design? Can, can you give some specific examples? Well, uh, yes. So we, we talked about unintended consequences a little bit when it came to issues related to renovations back that started in the 1970s. Uh, This was a time during the energy crisis that there was a lot of attention paid to managing our resources better. And in the built environment, that meant, okay, we're going to do a better job of having our buildings be more energy efficient with increased having better insulation within the attics, having better building material that are going to 
be able to have less air flow through the buildings and be able to make them tighter. So when that happened, that created many different things. Okay, it sounds good. We're going to have more air state, that heated air or, or that cooled air within that building. We're going to have more of that stay in that building and less of it leak out. Well, that sounds good uh, from an energy perspective, energy use perspective. But the unintended consequences there is, is that we were able to see increases of microbial growth whether it be mold or mildew or, or bacteria within buildings, uh, where you're having less fresh air, you, you can have less moisture control. And these are buildings that were not designed uh, initially for that type of use, that type of structure. The way we saw this play out in public health was there was this new term that, that came about, which was sick building syndrome. And it was really used as a description of people who went to work on a Monday morning and they progressively got sicker throughout the week. And then they got better when they went home. It was the, so it was identified as an exposure within the workplace, which was typically in an office building. And so we started seeing more and more of this come up in the 19. 70s and throughout the 80s and even in the 90s, I got involved in these types of investigations uh, before the built environment community caught up on these issues and were able to address these issues and look at maintaining good ventilation, maintaining good moisture control, and maintaining good design and that you don't put machinery in areas that are going to be off-gassing volatile chemicals near office spaces, for example. And so those types of issues. So we have looked at this issue um, as well in some of the science that we've done. We're a public health agency. We hope that our partners across the scientific community support us by doing some of the science that we need to do better public health. But sometimes we do it ourselves. Oftentimes we do it ourselves because we are the experts in these specific areas. Uh, so within our division, uh, we have scientists who have worked with the Housing and Urban Development Agency, or HUD, as we call it here in, in the United States, to do a study to look at contrasting green building design or green building renovations within lower income homes compared to those who don't have those types of renovations to look to see if that improves management of asthma or management of allergies and, and respiratory diseases. So that study has not been completed fully yet. We have some results which have been published that have looked at how those two different types of designs do have impacts on the types of exposures you see within buildings. And we have not done all of the research yet, so that's more to come on that. I would also like to point out uh, several of us within the federal family of agencies put together a funding portfolio to support the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine to do a study to look at how the volatile chemicals within buildings and building products, how they interact uh, there's often a misunderstanding that the chemicals that are being off-gassed from these types of materials, how they stay as they are. 
But we're finding more and more within the scientific research community that there's chemistry happening in the indoor air space. And so last year, they released a report on indoor air chemistry, and I'll refer your audience to that National Academy of Science Engineering and Medicine report for the findings there. So we have worked together to help look at those unintended consequences through science, through empowering new science, uh, or trying to address the questions that need to be addressed through that report. And we also help to partner with other agencies in that as they are using their resources to help retrofit buildings, renovate buildings, make them green, more energy efficient, that they're also thinking about public health issues and trying to help prevent them from causing more harm. Fantastic. Eric, thank you so much for joining me in this studio today. This was It's a great conversation, and I think there's much more to unpack. There is a lot in the built environment space. Uh, we didn't hit on it today, but there are health equity issues in the built environment space as well, and we work very closely in that space as well in the public health and in the federal family collectively on addressing those issues. And thank you for the opportunity to raise awareness of some of these public health concerns and the work that we do across CDC. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.